I'm excited for today. So we are doing a very requested episode. Very. And I, I think this one, by the time you hear it, was two weeks in the making. So we're doing Ed Kemper. Ed Kemper, Yergi's favorite serial killer man crush. <laughs> y- Yergi, Why do you have to say that? Yergi has stand out on this dude for a very long time time i didn't even know who he was weren't you on someone's podcast and you mentioned ed kemper and like all the lights went out or some shit like that yeah so we were recording one night and all the lights started flickering it was really really crazy and one of the other hosts was like it's ed kemper haunting us and i'm like he's not even fucking dead yeah he's 71 he's like an old crippled man but he's he's alive and kicking is he crippled Well, he's almost seven feet tall, and once you get old, like the osteoporosis and everything, I believe he's wheelchair-bound at this point. Is he? Yeah, I've heard acromegaly. I mean, you just look at—I mean, he doesn't have acromegaly. He's not quite that big, but you just look at people who are big and the problems they have, like Andre the Giant, who died fairly young. I I can't remember why. And then you have people like Hong Man Choi, the biggest Korean man known to exist, if I'm correct, and he had a giant tumor in his pituitary gland. And Antonio Bigfoot Silva had something similar too. And I I think he is acromegaly. I I don't know. I'll stop talking out my ass and we can we can get to this. But first But first, we have to share the love. Yes. All our new Apple reviews. So love this show. It's dark and fun at the same time. Love the rapport between the hosts. Keep up the great work. Subscribing now. And that's Eric from the True Consequences podcast, which I did listen to. Very, very good, and you should listen to them too. Yes. And then we have one saying, here's a podcast for true crime lovers, but also people who like a good story. The hosts manage to tell the story and have a bit of fun. You can tell they are enjoying what they do, but are well-informed. I really liked your Aaron Hernandez episode. Make sure to give them a listen. You will be happy you did. And that is Cam from our True Crime Podcast. Also, another very good podcast that I had been listening to before they had even hit us up. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. And then we have really entertaining to listen to. Glad I found this podcast. Keep up the good work. Here in their sports. So shout out to here in their sports. Please give them a listen. And this one is from Schmeadows. If you enjoy true crime and want to listen to some knowledgeable hosts, then you found the right podcast. They get off topic in the ways that bring them right back to the topic, which I love. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Yeah, we, we get so much shit about that from certain people and, and somebody actually who doesn't know us thinks that's cool. I mean, people are very divided about that. Yeah. I've noticed. I think you have to like build an audience and get them to like you first before they care about you going off topic. That's that's what I've noticed anyways. But anyway, you won't regret listening to these two. Well, thank you so much for that review. Yes, it's very sweet. And okay, last one. I enjoyed this podcast. It is dark yet funny. I subscribed and am addicted. Lol, keep up the good work from Nikki S. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. I will save the rest of the Apple reviews for the next episode. Remember, if you go and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, we will shout you out. And if you leave us a written review, if you take the time to leave a written review, I will know who left us the review and I will read your review and shout you out. Go do that. Go do that now. And if you're listening on YouTube, like Like and and subscribe. subscribe. As usual, it's always appreciated. But Anyways, we got, we got Ed Kemper. Ed Kemper. So if you don't know who Ed Kemper is, this man has a very beautiful voice. He probably should have been some sort of radio DJ. Or, or a podcaster. Or a podcaster. Or maybe he read documentaries. He'd be one of those like voiceover dudes. I mean, he was. He did a lot of books on tape. Oh, while he was in prison. Yeah. Yeah. He, he has, was very prolific with that. He has, he, if you listen to his interviews, just put them on the background. They're just so soothing. He's just like, and then I then I, I pulled my mother's vocal cords out and shoved them into the garbage disposal. Like he's got like an asthma voice. Yeah, he does. He does. He's got a voice you can coom to. <laughs> voice you can coom to. You can coom to, you know, if you're if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, which I might be. But anyway, so Edmund Emil Kemper the third is an American serial killer and necrophile who murdered ten people, including his paternal grandparents and mother. That means his father's parents. He killed them both kill them both thing about people who are serial killers they tend to usually include their middle name but this is not what a person known by their middle name what do you think decides it you know john wayne gacy i think it has to have a good ring to it yeah i guess so that like john sense. wayne gacy and who is david another... parker ray yeah david parker ray henry lee lucas henry lee lucas i'm i'm completely blanking right now whereas you have richard ramirez david berkowitz jeffrey dahmer ted bundy but yeah off topic so he is known by his first and last name which is how i'd prefer it anyways he is noted for his large size six foot nine inches that is not his penis 69 that is is my penis my penis is six foot nine inches or is it i don't know maybe if you subscribe to our 500 dollars tier on patreon you can find out for yourself just how big my penis is go to patreon we gotta, we gotta make a $500 yeah, tier yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, go to patreon.com slash the misery machine. We'll, we'll put up dick pics. <laughs> Not like you can't get them for free from random dudes by just making a Snapchat account. Even I get them occasionally from people I don't know. Oh my God. I never <laughs> accept random requests anymore because it's always a dick pic. I know. It's wonderful. Like, you're just like, how do they get all these names? all these snapchat names they have a list and they're like all right i'm gonna see if i get anything back and they just add one by one just dick pic dick pic dick pic they have the same dick pic that they send everyone it's like the one where it's kind of like hanging out of their fucking boxers or something like that they're trying to like make it all sexy it's like trapped in the fucking the waistband or something like i just i i don't get it i don't get it if you thought somebody wanted to see a dick pic what are you doing just fucking whip the whole thing out i don't know man i think the next time i get a random snapchat dick pic I'm going to just go onto Google Images and find my own, like, kind of gnarly dick pic and send it back. Yeah. Oh, hey, thanks, bro. You want to see mine, too? (sighs) Yeah. And if you subscribe to our Patreon, you can snap with us, too. Oh, yes, that's true. Yes. You can you can get snaps. We can. I don't know. Are we going to do them daily? I don't know. I mean, we snap enough. We, we snap enough. I can just send you, like, kitty pics and stuff like that. Or me making weird faces or stuff that we're doing. Me cooking shit. Cooking shit. Taking shits, shit, literal shit. Do you like shit? Pissing in cups. Pissing in cups. We fucking, we've, we've fucking like, we fucking drank each other's piss. Yeah. 
I'm not even gonna cut any of this. I don't even care. Y'all, like, get to the fucking point. Stop get babbling. P- get, get to the point. Like, I don't even care. You can switch this off right now. I'm having fun. Like, I haven't laughed so hard podcasting in a while. Anyways, this dude, for having such a big size, six foot nine inches. Also had a humongous... IQ. IQ. Of 145. 145. Though he he was given the test twice. So on his first take was 136, which is still two standard deviations above the mean. However... He learned how to administer said test. Yeah, he was administering IQ tests in the, in the mental hospital that he was in, or mental facility. Yep. And then they gave him a second IQ test. Now, what's weird to me about this, and this was pointed out by... Oh, I don't remember his name. It's Dr. Grande on on YouTube. I don't remember his first name, but he was saying that IQ tests are rarely given out twice. Because they were expensive. They're expensive, especially then. And there's usually no need for a follow-up because they usually don't deviate that much. So he thought that if it is true, but he was suspicious that it is true, but if it is true, maybe they thought that he scored too high and they thought that it couldn't have been true so they wanted to retest but he does have a recorded IQ of 145 either way so whether it's 136 or 145 he's still very intelligent person right he was nicknamed the co-ed killer as most of his victims were students at co-educational institutes they were also all women except for his grandfather is that correct yes that is correct he was born in California Kemper had a disturbed upbringing his parents were divorced and he moved to Montana. Montana's beautiful. With his abusive mother as a child before returning to California where he murdered his paternal grandparents when he was 15. Do you know where in Montana he lived? Oh, no, I don't. Okay, because I I quite love Montana, having been through there a few times. I've not been to Montana. It is beautiful. It's the sky, man. And everybody's going to be like, what the fuck? The sky? That sounds dumb. No, just go there. You'll see what I fucking mean. It's called the Big Sky State for a reason. Right. I mean, I I can say I don't know where in Montana, but I'm pretty sure it's going to mention it further down the notes. I just don't know off the tip of my tongue. Well, we'll find out. We'll find out. I've been to Butt, Butt, Montana. I think it's pronounced Butte, but I I call it But, but anyway, he he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic by court psychiatrists and sent to the Atascadero State Hospital as a criminally insane juvenile. He was released at the age of 21 after convincing psychiatrists he was rehabilitated. Kemper was regarded as non-threatening by his future victims. He targeted young female hitchhikers during his killing spree, luring them into his vehicle and driving them to secluded areas where he would murder them before taking their corpses back home to be decapitated, dismembered, and violated. 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 So, what kind of violation, you ask? Iramashio. Iramashio. Would you would you happen to give us the Webster's Dictionary it definition is, of Iramashio? It is essentially severed head sex. Sounds like a Japanese word. What is the Latin root here? Iramashio? Where is the head and where is the sex in here? I don't know. It's like fellatio. I mean, I guess. Just, God, I want to know how that word was invented. Is the EO the dick sucking? I, I mean, don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not an etymologist or whatever the word is. That's I'm a not, bug doctor. I'm not a bug doctor. <laughs> I'm more of a bug catcher. Anyways, yes, he, he would he would fuck severed heads. Kemper then murdered his mother and one of her friends before turning himself into the authorities. He was found sane and guilty at his trial at 1973. Kemper requested the death penalty, but capital punishment was suspended at California at the time, and he instead received eight concurrent life sentences. 
Since then, he has been incarcerated in the California medical facility. Kemper has waived his right to a parole hearing several times and has said he is happy in prison. I didn't think he said that he wasn't happy, but it was probably the best place for him. Right. He also said something like, society is not ready for a person like me and I can't blame them or something like that. Something of that nature. Okay. So he was born in Burbank, California on December 18th, 1948. He was the middle child and only son born to Clarnell Elizabeth Kemper and Edmund Emil Kemper II. Edmund II was a World War II veteran who, after the war, tested nuclear weapons in the Pacific Proving Grounds before returning to California, where he worked as an electrician. Clarnell often complained about Edmund II's menial electrician job and later said, quote, suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testing were nothing compared to living with her, and that Clarnell affected him, quote, more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front did. Wow. End quote. So this sounds like somebody who was very hard to deal with. Right. So weighing 13 pounds as a newborn. big boy. Ouch. Kemper was a head taller than his peers by the age of four. Early on, he exhibited antisocial behaviors such as cruelty to animals. At the age of 10, he buried a pet cat alive. Once it died, he dug it up, decapitated it with his decapitation again, and mounted its head on a spike. Kemper later stated that he derived pleasure from successfully lying to his family about killing the cat. At age 13, he killed another family cat when he perceived it to be favoring his younger sister, Alan Lee Kemper, over him, and then kept pieces of it in the closet until his mother found them. You know, I never found out what they did when they discovered that he killed the cat, because I think one of them they never found out. But they did find out about the second cat. Oh, of course, yeah. But it's it wasn't recorded what they did to him for it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure either. You, you would think something, but anyway. Kemper had a dark fantasy life. I mean, don't we all? Well, I guess that's subjective, right? Because there's some people out there that get a light spank on the butt when they're having missionary sex and they think their sex life is pretty spicy. But anyways. They're the people that watch Fifty Shades. They, they watch Fifty Shades and they're like, this is a real BDSM relationship. <laughs> oh, God. This is abuse. And I could go on about that. I hate Fifty Shades of Grey for so many reasons. I've never watched or read or anything. I know really nothing about it. And the most vanilla white bread people are fucking into it and they're like, gee, I would like to be in a BDSM relationship. That is not a BDSM relationship. That is abuse. That is abuse. You are craving to be in an abusive relationship. See a fucking therapist. Anyway. Anyway. He performed. I'm going to get so much hate for that. I don't he, care. he performed rituals. I fucking hate that series. Jesus. If you like that shit, go fuck yourself. He performed rituals with his younger sister's dolls that culminated in him removing their heads and hands. Yeah, do you like that fucking shit? Oh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, he just like beats the shit out of her. It's so fucking sexy and romantic. Seriously. Fuck yourself. And on one occasion when his elder sister, Susan Huey Kemper. That's Huey? A, Huey. He, not Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Like Huey, it's spelled H-U-G-H-E-Y. Like not, Huey Lewis in the news? That's not how he spells it. He spells it H-U-E-Y. Oh, that's true. It's hip to be square, Yergi. <laughs> oh, God. 
Anyways, so Huey Lewis in the news teased him. I'm going to get so much hate for this. Asked why he did not try to kiss his teacher. He replied, (laughs) if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. (laughs) You know, that's just uh, things that normal young boys say. And I'm actually not saying that sarcastically because I swear I've just heard weird shit like that growing up. But, you know, when you grow up in a backwoods town, maybe people just say a bunch of gummo shit. I don't know. Some gummo shit. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you trying to touch a coochie? He also recalled that as a young boy, he would sneak out of his house and armed with his father's bayonet, go to his second grade teacher's house to watch her through the windows. He stated in later interviews that some of his favorite games to play as a child were gas chamber and electric chair, in which he asked his younger sister to tie him up and flip an imaginary switch, and then he would tumble over and writhe on the floor, pretending that he was being executed by gas inhalation or electric shock. I mean, that kind of sounds like a fun game. It does. Get me wrong. He also had near-death experiences as a child once when his elder sister tried to push him in front of a train, and people say kids aren't evil, and another when she successfully pushed him into the deep end of a swimming pool where he almost drowned. I haven't found much on that. I really wanted to find more on that, and I couldn't find anything. But one other game that he said he used to play is he used to get this big, ornate rug, and he would have his sister and one of his friends roll him up tight in it. And he would have to, like, wiggle his way out. It would be, like, suffocating, depending on where he was rolled up in the rug. I would do shit like that, too, though. Yeah, when didn't I was you, younger. Yeah, didn't you say you would have people tie you up with a bunch of jump ropes or some shit like that? That, and I would do this thing where I would take a broom or a stick and put them through the front of like my no not sit on it front of my (laughs) (laughs) i would put them through the right up there the front of my overalls where the straps were and i would spin it until it would like almost make me pass out wait what do you mean spin it like Like, i would take it and spin it around like a like this i'm doing hand motions right now oh so it's tightened around my chest oh okay so i had this the swing that was put up by bailing twine I think it was it was some really like thick material it wasn't actually rope but it it was at my grandparents house and I would sit on the swing because the swing itself was just a wooden board and I would tie myself up around like I would just spin in a circle until it was wound up so tight that it was the the rope was literally pushing me down until I was compressed onto this board and then I would take my feet off the ground and I would spin really fast counterclockwise until it was all like undone. That was probably the closest thing I ever did. I also like to hide in really tight spaces. Me too. I'd hide in our bathroom closet and put all the covers on top of me. I would hide underneath our bathroom sink and I would sit there with a flashlight and read books yep. and it was the most cozy place in the world. Also, oh no, I do I do remember this. So my cousins growing up, they had this closet. They had this giant, cl- well it wasn't a giant closet, but they had, it was a small closet, but it was packed to the brim with stuffed animals. You would open this and the stuffed animals would literally just spill right out so what we do is we dig all the stuffed animals out and then i would have them buried all the stuffed animals on top of me and then close me in that closet and it was absolutely blissful it wasn't like i was being suffocated or everything but i just felt all warm and cozy in this closet being buried by stuffed animals yeah i was doing something similar like in the bathroom closet it was like a small closet and that's where my mom kept all of the comforters and sheets and i would bury myself under all of them and have my sister shut the door with the light off and i'd just be there i mean all these like all this bedding all over i mean i just think that's just things that kids like to enjoy as a kid yeah but anyway, so I'm not like really hating on him for his gas chamber game because you know we're a little bit the same. Or rolling him up in himself up in a rug. Yeah. But anyways, 
I mean, everybody had problematic things growing up. Some people like to play gas chamber. Some people play cowboys and Indians. You know, all, all these things are problematic in their own way. But anyways. Cowboys and nation's first people. And na- na- okay, first nationers. First, first nationers. nationers. Depending on where you are. Like in Canada, they call them first nationers. I also noticed when I lived in Washington State, they'd call them first nation people, which is totally fine. It's better than calling them Indians. They're not Indians, Jesus Christ. We live in 2020. Anyways, Kemper had a close relationship with his father and was devastated when his parents separated in 1957. So I think that would have made him nine years old, I believe. About, yep. About nine years old, causing him to be raised by Clarnell, his mother, in Helena, Montana. Yeah, there's where he lives. I've not actually been to Helena, I don't believe. He had a severely dysfunctional relationship with his mother, who was a neurotic, domineering alcoholic who would frequently belittle, humiliate, and abuse him. Clarnell often made her son sleep. What is it? Clarnell. Like, that sounds like a dude's name. I would think it's like Darnell. I just think of Darnell. Anyway, Clarnell often made her son sleep in a locked basement because she feared that he would harm his sisters. Regularly mocked him for his large size. He stood six feet four inches at the age of 15 and derided him as a real weirdo. She also refused to show him affection out of fear that she would turn him gay. That was actually a more common belief in those times than you might think. And told the young Kemper that he reminded her of his father and that no woman would ever love him. Gee, Kemper later described her as a sick, angry woman. I wonder why. And it has been postulated that she suffered from borderline personality disorder. She sounds like a real bitch. She sounds like a real piece of work. You know, one of those ladies you can bring home to mom. Yeah. So at the age of 14, Kemper ran away from home in an attempt to reconcile with his father in Van Nuys, California. Van Nuys. Van Nuys, whatever. Once there, he learned that his father had remarried and had a stepson. Kemper stayed with his father for a short while until the elder Kemper sent him to live with his paternal grandparents, who lived on a ranch in the mountains of North Fork. Kemper hated living in North Fork. He described his grandfather as senile and said his grandmother was constantly emasculating me and my grandfather. Jeez, I guess it runs on both sides I of the family. So. You know what was never mentioned by him? He mentioned how awful it was living with his grandparents, how awful it was living with his mother. He didn't mention what it did to him to be sent away by his father. And I really wonder what... What that did to him but i think it was pretty much one of the final straws in the beginning of the end yeah i think so because i mean he's approaching 15 at this point right on august 27th 1964 kemper's grandmother maude matilda huey kemper was sitting at the kitchen table when she and kemper had an argument enraged kemper stormed off and retrieved a rifle that his grandfather had given him for hunting he then re-entered the kitchen and fatally shot his grandmother in the head before firing twice more into her back it's an interesting way to double tap somebody i would imagine this is another case of had ed kemper had the internet he would know that that's a waste yeah it's already done it's, it's already done it's already done some accounts mention that she also suffered multiple post-mortem stab wounds with a kitchen knife. I'm assuming that every bit of ire he had towards his mother just all went into his grandmother Agreed. with that one. So when Kemper's grandfather, Edmund Emil Kemper I, returned from grocery shopping, Kemper went outside and fatally shot him in the driveway. He was unsure of what to do next, so he phoned his mother, who urged him to contact the local police. Kemper then called the police and waited to be taken into custody. When questioned by authorities, 
Kemper said that he, quote, just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma, end quote, and testified that he killed his grandfather so that he would not have to find out that his wife was dead. Psychiatrist Donald Lund, who interviewed Kemper at length during adulthood, wrote that, with these murders, quote, in his way, he had avenged the rejection of both his father and his mother, end quote. Kemper's crimes were deemed incomprehensible for a 15-year-old to commit, and court psychiatrists diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic before sending him to Atescadero State Hospital, a maximum security facility that houses mentally ill convicts. At Atascadero, California Youth Authority psychiatrists and social workers disagreed with the court psychiatrist diagnoses. The report stated that Kemper showed, and I quote, no flight of ideas, no interference with thoughts, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking. They also observed him to be intelligent and introspective. Initial testing measured his IQ at 136, over two standard deviations above average. He was re-diagnosed with a less severe condition, a, quote, personality trait disturbance, passive-aggressive type, end quote. Later on, at his time at Atascadero, Kemper was given another IQ test, which gave a higher result of 145. Kemper endeared himself to his psychiatrist by being a model prisoner and was trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. One of his psychiatrists later said, quote, he was a very good worker, and this is not typical of a sociopath. He really took pride in his work, end quote. Kemper also became a member of the JCs while in Atascadero. That's very common for killers. What are the JCs? It's some sort of fraternal order type thingy. I would really need to do some research as to what that is, but John Wayne Gacy was also the head of the JCs. No, I've never heard of this before. So keep reading and I will read up what it is. Okay. He said he developed, quote, some new tests and some new scales on the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, specifically an overt hostility scale. After his second arrest, Kemper said that being able to understand how these tests function allowed him to manipulate a psychiatrist and admitted that he learned a lot from the sex offenders to whom he administered tests. For example, they told him it was best to kill a woman after raping her to avoid leaving witnesses. I have yet to watch a documentary where he had said that. I, I didn't even know. So I'll give you some information here on the JCs. So it's the United States Junior Chamber, also known as the JCs, spelled J-A-Y-C-E-E-S or J-C-S or J-C-I-U-S-A, and it's a leadership training and civic organization for people between the ages of 18 and 40, and it's a branch of the Junior Chamber International. It's about basically business development, management skills, individual training, community service, and international connections. That's what it is. Okay. It's just like a civic organization. I figured it was going to be the Freemasons for prisoners. No. That's just what it, that's just what it felt like to Mm-mm. me. You know, when they say that he retook the IQ test was two standard deviations above the mean, and now he admits to manipulating psychiatrists, I have a hard time being like, yeah, yeah, this person, this person is actually his IQ. I mean, I'm sure he could be around 135. He seems exceptionally intelligent. Yeah, he definitely is. But even admitting to manipulating psychiatrists, I am now feeling that he is always going to manipulate other people, especially when bragging about it. I don't know. So I don't th- think you're wrong. So that whole thought process that he was, that he's this reformed person or that 
he had momentary psychosis due to the abuse of his mother, I think he's always going to be a manipulative person. Whether that came from his mother's abuse, whether that was pure genetics, or whether it's a little column A, column B. I think it's column A, column B. I think he is very manipulative. He is a very good talker, very smooth talker, very intelligent. So he can spin it whatever way he wants it, and it's going to look good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. On December 18th, 1969, which was his 21st birthday, Kemper was released on parole. Against the recommendations of psychiatrists at the hospital, he was released into the care of his mother, Clarnell, who had remarried at this point, taken the name Strandberg, and then divorced again. At 609 Aord Street, Aptos, California, a short drive from where she worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Kemper later demonstrated further to his psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated. And on November 29th, 1972, his juvenile records were permanently expunged. The last report from his probation psychiatrist read, and this is a little lengthy, if I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free from any psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or to any member of society. Since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. <laughs> yep. You got you got two counts of murder one right. expunged. So while staying with his mother, Kemper attended community college in accordance with his parole requirements and had hoped that he would become a police officer. But he was rejected because of his size. At the time of his release at from Atescadero, Kemper stood at six foot nine inches tall, which led him to his nickname Big Ed. Kemper maintained relationships with Santa Cruz police officers despite his rejection to join the force and became a self-described friendly nuisance. At a bar called the Jury Room, which was a popular hangout for local law enforcement officers. He worked a series of menial jobs before securing employment with the State of California Highway Department, now known as the California Department of Transportation. During this time, his relationship with Clarnell remained toxic and hostile, with mother and son having frequent arguments which their neighbors often overheard. Kemper later described the arguments he had with his mother around this time, stating, quote, My mother and I started right in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother, and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it, and just over stupid things. I remember one roof razor was over whether I should have my teeth cleaned, end quote. When he saved enough money, Kemper moved out to live with a friend in Alameda. Here, he still complains about being unable to get away from his mother as she regularly phoned him and paid him surprise visits. He often had financial difficulties which resulted in him frequently returning to his mother's apartment in Aptos. At Santa Cruz Beach, Kemper met a student from Turlock High School whom he became engaged in March 1973. I believe she was 16 years old. Really? I didn't know about yes. this. I did not see anything about this. Yep. The engagement was broken off at Kemper's second arrest and his fiance's parents requested that her name not be revealed to the public. The same year he began working for the highway department. Kemper was hit by a car while he was riding a motorcycle that he had recently purchased. His arm was badly injured in 
the crash and he received a $15,000, approximately 90 grand in 2019 adjusted for inflation settlement in the civil suit he filed against the car's driver. As he was driving around in the 1969 Ford Galaxy he bought with part of his settlement money, he noticed a large number of young women hitchhiking and began storing plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs in his car. He then began picking up young women and peacefully letting them go. According to Kemper, he picked up about 150 such hitchhikers before he felt homicidal sexual urges, which he called his little zappies, and began acting on them. Little zappies. <laughs> you know. You know, to each his own. Yeah, there's whatever. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to either. So between May 1972 and April 1973, Kemper killed eight people. He would pick up female students whom were hitchhiking and take them to isolated areas where he would shoot, stab, and smother or strangle them. He would then take their bodies back to his home where he would decapitate them, perform iromashio on the severed heads. That's have, head sex. That is head sex. Have sexual intercourse with their corpses and then dismember them. During this 11-month murder spree, he killed five college students, one high school student, his mother, and his mother's best friend. Kemper has stated in interviews that he would often go out and search for victims after having arguments with his mother and that she refused to introduce him to women attending the university where she worked. He recalled, she would say, you're just like your father. You don't deserve to get to know them. Psychiatrists and Kemper himself have espoused the belief that the young women were surrogates for his ultimate target, which was his mother. On May 7th, 1972, Kemper was driving in Berkeley when he picked up two 18-year-old hitchhiking Fresno State students, Marianne Pesh and Anita Mary Lucessa, on the pretext of taking them to Stanford University. After driving for an hour, he managed to reach a secluded wooded area near Alameda, which he was familiar with from working with the highway department. Here he handcuffed Pesh and locked Lucessa in the trunk and then stabbed and strangled Pesh to death before killing Lucessa in the same manner. Kemper later confessed that while handcuffing Pesh, he, and I quote, brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts and it embarrassed him, end quote, adding that he said, whoops, I'm sorry, or something like that after grazing her breast despite murdering her minutes later. What a sweet guy. <laughs> That's a gentleman. At, at least he has manners. He does. Kemper put both of the woman's bodies in the trunk of his Ford Galaxy and returned to his apartment. He was stopped on the way by a police officer for having a broken taillight, but the officer did not detect the corpses in the car. Kemper's roommate was not at home, so he took the bodies into his apartment where he took photographs of and had sexual intercourse with the naked corpses before dismembering them. He then put the body parts into plastic bags, which he later abandoned near Loma Prieta Mountain. Before disposing of Pesha's and Lucessa's severed heads in a ravine, Kemper engaged in Iramashio with both both of them. In August, Pesha's skull was found on Loma Prieta Mountain. An extensive search failed to turn up the rest of Pesha's remains or a trace of Lucessa. So in the evening of September 14, 1972, Kemper picked up 15-year-old dance student named Aiko Ku, who had decided to hitchhike to a dance class after missing her bus. He again drove to the remote area where he pulled a gun on Ku before accidentally logging himself out of the car. However, Ku let him back in the car as he had previously gained the 15-year-old's trust while holding her at gunpoint. Back inside the car, he proceeded to choke her unconscious, rape, and kill her. Kemper subsequently packed Ku's body in the trunk of his car and went to a nearby bar to have a few drinks before returning to his apartment. He later confessed that after exiting the bar, he opened the trunk of the car and I quote, admiring his catch like a fisherman, end quote. Back at his apartment, he had sexual intercourse with her corpse before dismembering and disposing of the remains in a similar manner as his previous two victims. Ku's mother called the police to report the disappearance of her daughter and put up hundreds of flyers asking for information, but not receive any responses regarding her daughter's location.
location or status. On January 7th, 1973, Kemper, who had moved back in with his mother, was driving around the Cabrillo College campus where he picked up 18-year-old student Cynthia Ann Shaw. He drove to a sequestered wooded area and fatally shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He then hid her body in the trunk of his car and drove to his mother's house, where he kept her body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. When his mother left for work the next morning, he had sexual intercourse with and removed the bullet from Shaw's corpse before dismembering and decapitating her in his mother's bathtub. Kemper kept Shaw's severed head for several days, regularly engaging in Iramashio with it, before burying it in his mother's garden facing upward towards her bedroom. After his arrest, he stated that he did this because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. He then discarded the rest of Shaw's remains by throwing them off a cliff. Over the course of the following few weeks, all but her head and right hand were discovered and pieced together like a macabre jigsaw puzzle. A pathologist determined that Shaw had been cut into pieces with a power saw. Man, that's some... That's some twisted shit. It really I'm, I'm, is. I'm just going to bury this co-ed underneath my mother's garden, have it facing her room, just to, just to spite her in my own mind. Right. So on February 5th, 1973, after a heated argument with his mother, Kemper left the house in search of possible victims. With heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area, students were advised only to accept rides from cars with university stickers on them. Kemper had such a sticker as his mother worked at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He encountered 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Helen Allison Lou. According to Kemper, Thorpe entered his car first, which reassured Lou to also enter. He then fatally shot Thorpe and Lou with his 22 caliber pistol and wrapped their bodies in blankets. Kemper again brought his victims back to his mother's house. This time he beheaded them in his car and carried the headless corpses into his mother's house to have sexual intercourse with them. He then dismembered the bodies, removed the bullets to prevent identification, and the next morning, and discarded their remains. Some remains were found at Eden Canyon a week later and more were found near Highway 1 in March. When questioned in an interview as to why he decapitated his victims, he explained, quote, the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth, that's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off, end quote. Or if you believe in Hunter S. Thompson, if you kill the body, the head will die. One thing I'm confused about here is it keeps talking about him bringing corpses back to his mother's house but he had a roommate he had an apartment with a roommate so was he going back and forth living by himself and living with his mother or did he go over to his mother's house purely just to risk it and to have dead bodies in the house i'm pretty sure he moved back in with his mother i mean it didn't really state it i mean it did say he moved back in but he was having financial troubles i'm sure the roommate situation fell apart probably i mean everything that i looked up and read is that he lived with his mother the majority of the time. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. On April 20th, 1973, after coming home from a party... Clarnell awakened at Kemper with her arrival. While sitting in her bed reading a book, she noticed Kemper enter her room and said to him, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Kemper re- replied, no, good night. He then waited for her to fall asleep before returning to bludgeon her with a claw hammer and slit her throat with a knife. He subsequently decapitated her and engaged in iramashio with her severed head before using it as a dartboard. I didn't know he fucked her head. He did. I didn't think he did that. He okay. Did. He really, really did. Was she coming home from a 420 party? A 420 party? 420 Smoke party. weed every day. Or were they celebrating Hitler's birthday? Maybe. I Maybe don't know. both. 
Yeah, she seems the type. But anyway, Kemper stated that he put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour and threw darts in it and ultimately smashed her face in. He also cut out her tongue and larynx and put them in the garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal could not break down the tough vocal cords and ejected the tissue back into the sink. That seemed appropriate, Kemper later said. As much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years, end quote. My goodness. Yeah, nothing that I read said that he fucked her head i've i've known about that for a long really? time really yeah. i didn't know he fucked her head wow i i knew that he ripped out her tongue and her voice box and put them in the garbage disposal and used it as a dartboard and just screamed at her for a while i did not know he did that i did not figure that was going to be part of his mo here with his mother you know mm. i thought the sex was if you want to call it that was reserved for the Iromashio. other women. Other women. So Kemper then hid his mother's corpse in a closet and went out to drink at a nearby bar. Upon his return, he invited his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Haler Sally Hallett, over to the house to have dinner and watch a movie. When Hallett arrived, Kemper strangled her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Hallett had gone away together on a vacation. He subsequently put Hallett's corpse in the closet, obscured any outward sign of disturbance and left a note to the police it read and it was at approximately 5 15 a.m saturday no need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible murderous butcher i was quick asleep the way i wanted it no sloppy incomplete gents just a lack of time I got things to do. <laughs> Afterwards, Kemper fled the scene. He drove nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado, taking caffeine pills to stay awake for the over 1,000-mile journey. Dude, that's that's a lot. That's, that is a drive. That is a lot. Through mountains, too. Yeah, so when I was driving from Maine to Seattle and back, it took six-ish days. I didn't even hit 1,000 miles in a day, and some days were almost nonstop, and I would drive, you know, 9, 10 hours at a whack sometimes. I think when I I went to Ohio, and that was not quite 1,000, but I went at that even through a snowstorm for close to 20 hours before we finally made it to the hotel. That's crazy. Yeah, it's ridiculous. No, when I mapped it out... I believe Seattle was 3,500 miles from where I was driving from. I believe. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was 3,500. That sounds about right. You you ever want to think about, do you want to do a cross-country trip? Which, by the way, if you're even slightly curious about it, I suggest doing it. I want to do it so bad. It's an amazing experience, and I don't like long drives. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a long ways. But so, yeah, so a thousand mile journey. He had three guns and a hundred rounds of ammunition in his car and believed he was the target of an active manhunt. After not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mother and Hallett when he arrived in Pueblo, he found a phone booth and called the police. He confessed to the murders of his mother and Hallett, but the police did not take his call seriously and told him to call back at a later time. Several hours later, Kemper called again, asking to speak to an officer he personally knew. He confessed to that officer that he killed his mother and Hallett and waited for the police to arrive to take him into custody, where he also confessed to the murders of the other six students. When asked in a later interview why he turned himself in, Kemper said, quote, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. 
toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off, end quote. Kemper was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder on May 7, 1973. He was assigned the chief public defender of Santa Cruz County, attorney Jim Jackson. Due to Kemper's explicit and detailed confession, his counsel only option was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Kemper twice tried to commit suicide in custody. His trial went ahead on October 23rd, 1973. Do you know how he tried to kill himself? That I'm not sure. Yeah, because I didn't know he tried to kill himself. Three court-appointed psychiatrists found Kemper to be legally sane. One of the psychiatrists, Dr. Joel Fort, investigated his juvenile records and the diagnosis that he was once psychotic. Fort also interviewed Kemper, including under-truth serum. I didn't know that That's was legal. Real? Yeah, I, yeah, it's sodium pentothal. I didn't know they could legally give that to people. I thought that was just a thing they did to prisoners of war or some shit. Under truth serum, it was relayed to the court that Kemper had engaged in cannibalism, alleging that he sliced flesh from the legs of the victims, then cooked and consumed these strips of flesh in a casserole. Nevertheless, Fort determined that Kemper was fully cognizant in each case and stated that Kemper enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled a murderer. Kemper later recanted the confession of cannibalism. Yeah, I don't think that happens. In a casserole? <laughs> California used the M. Nothen standard, which held that for a defendant to, quote, establish a defense on the ground of insanity, it must be clearly proved that at the time of committing the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of mind and not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing. Or if he did know it, that he did not know he was doing what was wrong, end quote. And I also want to add that I think the U.S. is one of the hardest first world countries to get off on insanity charges yeah. compared to the rest of them. So you have that stacked against you, too. Kemper appeared to have known that the nature of his acts was wrong and had shown signs of malice of forethought. On November 1st, Kemper took the stand. It's kind of rare in these cases. He testified that he killed the victims because he wanted them, quote, for myself, like possessions, end quote, and attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could only have been committed by someone with an aberrant mind. He said two beings inhabited his body and that when the killer personality took over, it was, quote, kind of like blacking out. On November 8, 1973, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours before declaring Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. He asked for the death penalty, requesting death by torture. However, with a moratorium placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California, he instead received seven years to life for each count, with these terms to be served concurrently, and was sentenced to the California Medical Facility. Isn't concurrently mean they... At the same time. You serve them at the same... Yeah, isn't that not usually how they do it no it's usually consecutive charges. yeah it's usually consecutively so i'm surprised they did it concurrently yeah because then wouldn't that mean that he could, he could theoretically get off in seven years theoretically theoretically but he's not going to no. he's probably gonna be there for life so in the california medical facility kemper was incarcerated in the same prison block as other notorious criminals such as herbert mullen and charles manson kemper showed particular disdain for mullen who committed his murders at the same time in the same area as kemper he described mullen as quote just a cold-blooded killer killing everybody he saw for no good reason end quote kemper manipulated and physically intimidated mullen who at five feet seven inches was more than a foot shorter than him 
program. Kemper stated that, quote, Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people when someone tried to watch TV, so I threw water on him to shut him up. Then when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. (laughs) Herbie liked peanuts. That was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing. That's called behavior modification treatment, end quote. fabulous. (laughs) Oh my God, this dude. Kemper (laughs) remains among the general population in prison is considered a model prisoner. He was in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists and was an accomplished craftsman of ceramic cups. They are really nice. Oh, really? I haven't seen these. Yeah, so he's made a few that he's like given as gifts to other people, and they're pretty cool. I'll have to pull them up and show them to you, but they're really colorful and have big, crazy handles. Yeah, please do. I I want to see his artistic side. Yeah. He was also a prolific reader of books on tape for the blind. A 1987 Los Angeles Times article stated that he was the coordinator of the prison's program and had personally spent over 5,000 hours narrating books with several hundred completed recordings to his name. He was retired from these positions in 2015 after he experienced a stroke and was declared medically disabled. He received his first rules violation report in 2016 for failing to provide a urine sample. Okay, so I found some of them. There are these ones that look a little bit mosaic. So if you kind of scroll through and check them out. Yeah. I like them. Oh, wow. These are very nice, actually. I think they'd match well with my plates. Especially for prison ceramics, which I didn't know was a thing. (laughs) That's very nice. Yeah. I like that. While in prison, Kemper has participated in a number of interviews, including a segment in the 1982 documentary, The Killing of America, as well as an appearance in the 1984 documentary, murder, no apparent motive. His interviews have contributed to the understanding of the mind of serial killers. FBI profiler John Douglas described Kemper as among the brightest prison inmates he's ever interviewed and capable of rare insight for a violent criminal. Kemper is forthcoming about the nature of his crimes and has stated that he participated in the interviews to save others like himself from killing. At the end of his murder, no apparent motive interview, he said, quote, there's somebody out there that is watching this and hasn't done that, hasn't killed people and wants to and rages inside and struggles with that feeling or is so sure they have it under control. They need to talk to somebody about it. Trust somebody enough to sit down and talk about something that isn't a crime. Thinking that way isn't a crime. Doing it isn't just a crime. It's a horrible thing. It doesn't know when to quit, and it can't be stopped easily once it starts. End quote. He also conducted an interview with French writer... Stéphane. Stéphane. Burgoyne. Well, that'd be the Lewiston way of saying it. We'll, <laughs> it, we'll, it, we'll say it, it Lewiston. It, it, Stéphane Burgoyne, yeah. yeah. In 1991. Kemper was first eligible for parole in 1979. He was denied parole that year, as well as the parole hearings in 1980, 1981, and 1982. He subsequently raved his right to hearing in 1985. He was denied parole at his hearing in 1988, where he said, Society is not ready in any shape or form for me. I can't fault him for that. He was denied parole again in 1991 and 1994. He then waived his right to a hearing in 1997 and in 2002. He attended the hearing in 2007 where he was yet again denied parole. Prosecutor Adrian Simmons said... It looks like Air- Ariadne. Like Ariadne, like a web of Ariadne. I don't, what is that? It's like a Greek term. Okay, well, well maybe, but that's spelled A-R-I-A-D-N-E. That's definitely Ariadne. Okay, you'll, you'll have to... You have to learn me on this. Yes. I was more into Norse mythology than I was Greek. Yeah, I took a whole course of it on it. 
on Greek mythology. Greek mythology, it was pretty good. They just made us read the Iliad and the Odyssey, Mm -hmm. and it was boring as shit. So we're going to go with Prosecutor Ariadne Simmons, or Simons maybe, said, We don't care how much of a model prisoner he is because of the enormity of his crimes. Kemper waived his right to a hearing in 2012. Kemper was denied parole in 2017 and is next eligible in 2024. If he makes it that long. If he makes it that long. Kemper has influenced many works of film and literature. He was an inspiration for the character Buffalo Bill in Thomas Harris's 1988 novel Silence of the Lambs and its 1991 film adaptation. Like Kemper, Bill fatally shoots his grandparents as a teenager. So I always thought he was Silence... based off of Ed Gein. I thought it was Ed Gein. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. But like speaking of Ed Gein, the film American Psycho with Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman. He mistakenly attributes a quote to Ed Gein, but really it's Kemper that said this. It was something like, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. The other part wonders what her head would look like on a stick. (laughs) I can't remember the scene in the movie where he does that. I, I don't know if he has that dude drugged. Or if he's just speaking to some random girl and they never take him seriously. I don't know. I haven't seen it in a while. I do like that movie, though, quite a bit. I like Huey Lewis in the news. Me too. (laughs) It's hip to be square. (laughs) Anyway, so Kemper was portrayed by actor Cameron Britton in the 2017 Netflix television drama series Mindhunter, which you need to watch. I have not seen it. It's really good. At least season one. I will say that I've seen pictures and the actor playing Kemper looks spot on. And he sounds spot on. Does he? Yes. So Britton received a nomination for the Primetime Emmy Awards for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series because of this role. I wonder who actually won it. I don't know, but it was pretty good. Yeah. You really should watch it. I will I will also say that we found this Reddit AMA. Ed Kemper's my uncle and it was confirmed and he didn't find out till way later in life. They they kept it all quiet. And one thing that he said was mental health problems and abuse are pretty rampant in my family. My siblings and I were never physically abused, but I caught a lot of verbal abuse from my dad. Suicidal tendencies and alcoholism are also prevalent. I believe that Ed's mental health issues were likely hereditary, but were exacerbated by his mother to the point of becoming homicidal. And while he may be very smart, he never got to mature past puberty because of the abuse and being institutionalized. I was a very angry kid, and I can't imagine what problems I would have had if I was that angry at my age. Yeah. So, I mean, sure, he's speculating, but it is nice to hear a viewpoint from somebody that's actually in Kemper's immediate family. Right, and we could post the link to that Reddit, maybe. Yes, no, we absolutely should, because it was a very interesting read. The person in question was pretty forthcoming about what he knew about the family, so that was pretty cool. Yeah. I do know that his family, I don't have the article for this, but I did read something about how his brother feels like he can't go out in public, or that people still harass their family i don't know anything about that though No, i think at this point maybe i don't know i'm not them but it seems like it's very far removed for that still to be a thing that's what you would think but it's hard to say you never know especially if they're still sort of in the area right i mean how can i pretend to know what that's like no i can't yeah so some people have long memories and once a family gets stigmatized that can last for generations So I think we can stop this here. We're going to have a companion episode out this Wednesday, and that's going to be more focused on 
us theorizing about Ed Kemper, his motives, and the state of his personality. I guess that's the best way to put it. Or what he could have been like today. Yeah, yeah, we won't delve in too much. But do remember there is another companion episode to Ed Kemper that is Patreon exclusive, and that is probably never going to see the light of day. So if you want to listen to that in the meantime, that is something we won't be covering on Wednesday. So you can go to patreon.com slash the misery machine to check that one out. Yes, so we're going to have Sage Murray and Oud Gallifrey from Occulte Veritatis, and we're doing a bit of a collaboration, so I'm very yes, excited very for excited that. very about this. So that will be Wednesday. Yep. And yeah, so you'll have that to look forward to. So is there anything else you had? I don't think so. Uh, five-star review and written review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Subscribing helps too. And subscribe on YouTube and drop us a like or a comment. Those things go a long way too. Join our Facebook group. Yeah, join our Facebook group. And if you're listening on Podbean, follow us there too. I don't know if people use that, but... So we've had like a handful of people that have followed us on Podbean it's, recently. It's Yeah, I, I've noticed that a little bit. I don't really keep track of it like I do other things. Yeah, like our primary sources of, of listenership is Apple and Spotify and then YouTube. But I listen to Apple. things on, on Podbean myself. I listen to things on YouTube, but I'm also weird. But yeah, I, I, I would rather us rack it up on Apple. That seems to be where most of our listenership and what most people seem to use anyway. Yeah. All right. So we will see you Wednesday. And yeah. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.